Good morning, church family. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 will be in verses 12 through 17 today as we reflect upon this truth. The incarnation brings to us God's salvation. The incarnation brings to us God's salvation over the course of the last several weeks. We've been reflecting upon the incarnation with one another, and we've looked at various truths that that incarnation reveals for you and me. We look from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that the incarnation reveals for us the miraculous, the truth that God in ages past promised to you and me a Messiah who would be born of a virgin, a miraculous event. This afternoon in our Christmas Eve service, we'll be looking at the truth. The incarnation reveals for us the trustworthiness of Scripture. So look forward to seeing you back this afternoon as we celebrate Christmas together at our annual Christmas Eve service. First Timothy chapter 1 Verse, verses 12 through 17 is a reflection of the Apostle Paul ultimately upon his life as he reflects back on who he was and what God had miraculously done in his life. This is Paul, if you will, giving praise to the Lord for the salvation that God had accomplished in his life. Now, if you've read First Timothy before, you know that Paul is ultimately writing a letter to his protege, young Timothy, and Paul is concerned with Timothy's leadership in the church there at Ephesus, and in total, how the church of God might, might worship, how they might live in relationship to one another as they come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we hear Paul saying to uh, Timothy, I'm writing these words to you so that you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God or the household of faith. Uh, Paul is concerned with the way in which the church will worship. And one of those concerns we see listed right at the very beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 down to verse 11. And Paul is concerned with the false teachers, those who are misapplying the law, those who wrongly understand the effects or the purpose of the law. You'll notice here in verse 3 that Paul gives a warning that they, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This is what Paul is concerned with. As Paul thinks about how the church ought to relate to one another, how one ought to behave in the household of faith, Paul begins this reflection with this overwhelming sense of gratitude for what God has accomplished in his life. For it is true, friends, that unless this gospel narrative has gripped our hearts, unless this gospel narrative has so radically changed our lives, we will not rightly participate in the body of Christ. Listen at these words as Paul reflects upon the incredible grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that was made known to him. I thank him. I have thanks toward him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was, listen at these designations of the Apostle Paul, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed me, overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save 
sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The incarnation brings to you and me God's salvation. Paul is going to reflect upon this truth in this way this morning. First, we see that Paul reminds us that Christ is in the business of redeeming sinners. Paul says, Christ redeemed me, a sinner. How does God redeem sinners? He redeemed sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. Notice Paul begins in a slightly unusual way for us. We're used to Paul beginning with a sense of thankfulness toward God. But notice in our text this morning, I have thanks for him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you might can imagine as Paul is penning these words, he's reflecting upon that narrative that we know so well from Acts chapter 9. As Paul was on that road to Damascus, he had an unusual encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, did he not? Jesus leveled an accusation against Paul, made himself known to the apostle Paul, and Paul comes to faith in Christ, and you can imagine as Paul is reflecting upon that moment that indeed his heart, his life, his mind is filled with this unbelievable sense of thankfulness for what Christ Jesus has accomplished on his behalf. But notice what Paul says God has given him in that moment. I thank him who has given me what? Strength. But Paul is aware that he is ultimately writing a letter to a protege, young Timothy, a young man in the ministry. Perhaps what Paul is doing with these words is seeking to settle in the heart and in the mind of his young protege, Timothy, that as it relates to pastoral ministry, as it relates to his relationship to the church, to his leadership in the life of the church, that young Timothy might be reminded that there is one who grants strength and grace and mercy, and it's God through Christ by his Spirit. And see, friends, it's a reminder for you and me, even as we think about our own Christian walk, our own walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, who we are as believers Our strength, our might as believers is not because of anything in us. No good in us, no strength in us. Everything we are is because of the strength and the mercy and the grace of God. So imagine these words as they settle upon the mind and the heart of young Timothy. As Timothy will undoubtedly face difficulty and the life of a church. Friend, perhaps you're here and you've not been connected that long to a church, and you show up on a morning like this and you think, man, look how beautiful everybody is. I love the sea of red this morning in the congregation. Think, wow, man, everybody is just so incredibly nice and kind and gracious. Well, I'm sorry to let you down this morning. It isn't always the case. Right? Why? Because the church is filled with a group of people who themselves are saved by grace and yet still sinners. And, and so sometimes we, we like to duke it out. Or in this case, Paul is writing about a very serious issue that has gripped the heart of the church. There are actually people on the inside who are teaching false doctrines that if believed will lead one astray and away from the knowledge of the true God. So how is Timothy 
going to endure when he faces those moments of trial. Friend, not in his own strength, not in his own might, but solely by the strength that has been granted to him through Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, be strengthened today. Be encouraged today. Be uplifted today, not as you look at your own circumstances, not as you look at the joy of of what might take place over the course of the next few days as you spend time with your family celebrating the birth of Christ. Be strengthened by a truth that always remains. Jesus Christ, our Lord. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why? Because He judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Paul is reflecting upon this truth, that when God, by grace through faith, brought him salvation, and God has given to Paul an unusual ministry. Paul would be the apostle to the Gentiles, if you will. He would be the apostle who, who takes the gospel. He has written so much of our New Testament. And Paul would be one who would faithfully steward the grace that God had given to him, even though, notice verse 13, who was Paul once? He was formerly a blasphemer. What does it mean to blaspheme? This word is, by the way, not used all that often in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament much more than we do in the New Testament. What does it mean to be a blasphemer? What does it mean to be guilty of blasphemy? This is a charge leveled against Paul because of his actions, his comments, against the Lord Jesus Christ himself, against against God himself. We blaspheme against God. How do we blaspheme against God? We blaspheme against God when we assign thoughts, beliefs, actions, statements to God that God himself has not said or done. We must be very careful, friends, how we speak about God. We must be very careful how we think about God, lest we too be guilty of what Paul was guilty of, blaspheming. And I would say to us that every one of us who stands in opposition to Christ as Lord is guilty of being a blasphemer. This is what Paul was guilty of. He was not believing Jesus was Lord. You might remember the narrative with Stephen when Stephen was stoned. Who was at Stephen's death? Saul was there, was he not? Why did Saul desire the death of Stephen? Because Stephen rightly understood who Christ was. He says, I'm a a blasphemer. Not only was he a blasphemer, he was a persecutor. You might remember, again, back to Acts chapter 9, when the Lord Jesus appears to the apostle Paul, or Saul in that case, He said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, had Paul ever seen, had Saul ever seen Christ? Had he ever physically encountered the person of Christ before this time? No. At the moment in which Saul is carrying out his persecution, where is Jesus? He had ascended to the right hand of the Father. So how in the world is Saul persecuting Jesus who isn't even earthly there. He's persecuting Jesus who is not physically there by persecuting his church. And it shows just how closely connected the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to the body of Christ. This is why, friends, Paul will use the designation reflecting upon the church as body. We are the body of Christ. As Paul was persecuting and killing Christians, he was literally leveling attacks against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was a blasphemer. He was 
a persecutor. He was a violent man. He was in violent opposition to the gospel. Man, these are three very strong words that designate strong opposition to Christ, to the gospel. But we're reminded, friends, that as Paul reflects upon his former life, so too has he reflected upon, ours, upon you and me and our former states, and he calls us in our former states enemies of God, haters of God. See, friend, if you're here this morning and you have rejected Christ as Lord, you don't believe Jesus is God. Maybe you reject the entire concept of the incarnation. This designation of Paul's life is is not only a designation of Paul's life, it's a designation of everyone's life who stands in opposition to Jesus as Savior and Lord. But Paul will remind us that there is one thing and one thing only that overcomes such opposition to the gospel. Notice Paul doesn't say, Jesus, I thank you that when you appeared to me, you were one skilled in the rhetoric of Aristotle, that you presented to me a case that was irrefutable. I appreciated the language that you used and and, uh, all of those things convicted me that I should follow you. What overwhelms the Apostle Paul? Not the apology of the preacher, but the beauty of the one preached. A blasphemer, a persecutor, an exceedingly violent man, but notice these next words, but I received mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is the withholding of judgment that you and I deserve. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. What every single person in this room this morning deserves is death, is separation from God. Physical death and spiritual death. And if the Lord Jesus Christ executed judgment against all of us in that way, he would be perfectly just in doing so. Why? The wages of sin is death. But aren't you thankful that that isn't the only truth of the gospel this morning, friends? And while the wages of sin is death, we also learn that the mercy and grace of God is life. This is what Paul says he's received. Paul says, I have received eternal life. I have received the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been poured out on me, one who is the most violent of all sinners. I have received mercy. I've not been given the judgment that I deserved. Why? Look what he says at the end of verse 13. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now is Paul saying that God is just out here running around trying to find people who really didn't know what they were doing. You, you know the, the, the guy that murdered his wife? He, he was nice before that time, right? Real sweet. We, we all like to go to work with him. Had lunch with him on numerous occasions. And one day he, bless his heart, He just acted in unbelief. Aha, God says, there he is. Hey, Paul, come here. I want to give you mercy because I know that your act of murder 
was done in ignorance. Bless your heart, you just didn't know what you were doing. Is this what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture? No. Paul is defining in some ways what he has done in other ways to define the fact that apart from Christ, Paul was ungodly. Listen as he would say in Romans chapter 5 or 6, for while we were still weak, while we were still enemies, he would go on and say in verse 9, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the what? Ungodly. Paul is saying that I received mercy. Why? Because I was an ungodly sinner. Why? Because I was a hater of God. Why? Because I was a blasphemer of God. And to whom, friend, is the gospel good news? The gospel is good news to those type of people. And who are those type of people, my friend? You and me apart from Christ. Oh, friend, God's mercy, God's grace is for the vilest of sinners. He will make the vilest sinner clean, the hymn writer wrote. This is what the mercy of Christ does for you and me. And Paul says, the way that this was given, look how he says in verse 14, that this grace of the Lord, it overpowered me. It overflowed for me. And what was the implication of it? Faith and love that are in Christ. This is what the gospel does in our hearts, our lives. It overwhelms us. It overcomes us. It overflows for you and me. And the flow of that kindness of God is best demonstrated when you and I look to the cross of Christ. For there, the life of Christ was given for the sins of of the world, so that those who by faith would trust in Christ might experience this, this what Paul has experienced. And notice what the implications of the gospel do for us. They work in a horizontal and in a vertical way. Faith, the word faith is used in relationship to God. This is what God does for us. He increases our faith. And I don't think Paul here is, is speaking at, at this point in this specific um, uh, phrase of saving faith here. He's talking about the fact that this grace has overwhelmed him and it increases his faith and his hope in God as a believer. And this is what God does for us through the process of sanctification. Every day ought to be a day of growth and faith. And that growth in faith happens in the same way that our, our coming to faith in Christ does, a work of the Spirit of God. So when grace overwhelms us, it increases our faith and hope in God in a horizontal way. But notice what it does vertically. It increases our love for one another. Friends, what a wonderful designation of what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. To be one who has deep, abiding faith in God and a deep love for the body of Christ. Is this grace of God manifesting itself in this way in your life? How is your life a demonstration of faith in God? How do you see evidences of that faith being increased in your life on a daily basis? And secondly, how do you see your love and your commitment and your devotion to the body of Christ being increased? Do you love the gathering of God's people? Do you look forward to this moment 
Do you look forward to that moment of encouraging a brother or sister who's going through a trial, a tribulation in life? Are you, are you willing to, to give of your time and your energy and your resources to care for and to love someone else? See, Paul says, when that grace of God overwhelms us, it increases our devotion to God and our devotion to one another. God came to save sinners. Who are those sinners? Paul. Who are those sinners? You and me. God came to save those sinners. And look at verse 15. Paul tells us the gospel is a trustworthy saying. You can believe it. You can proclaim it. You can live your life by it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now Paul will four other times in the pastoral epistles use this phrase, this is a trustworthy statement. He's going to use it two more times here in 1 Timothy. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires or any, if anyone desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That is a trustworthy statement, the Apostle Paul says. Look with me next in, in chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He just got through explaining uh, to us here in verses 9 and 10 what a true servant of the Lord Jesus Christ would look like. Now look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Notice verse 8, remember Christ Jesus risen from the dead. So he's going to speak to us about, about Christ. Verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. If we had died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And the last one occurs in the book over Titus. Look in Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul is saying to us that this narrative that he's about to explain is a trustworthy statement. And what is that narrative that he will explain? The glory and the beauty of the incarnation of Christ. Why did Jesus, one who was fully God, one who existed from all of eternity with the Father, one who has never been absent and always there, there's never been a moment in which Christ himself did not exist, Why would that God leave heaven where he had the angels around him at all times who who lived to serve this great and glorious king? Why would he leave heaven? Why would he empty himself? Why would he take the form of a man? Why would he lay aside aspects of his deity? Jesus, Paul says, became a baby 
in a manger for one purpose. And what is that one purpose that Christ has come to accomplish? Notice your text again. This is a trustworthy statement and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Friends, this is the purpose of God's incarnation in Christ of a baby in a manger. Jesus Christ has come to accomplish what you and I could not accomplish by ourselves. No amount of work, no amount of good, no amount of law abiding. In fact, look back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And notice what Paul says. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the what? Teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They have wrongly misunderstood, misapplied the law of God. And we know from Paul in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, that the right application of the law always points us to whom? Christ. For Paul will write in verse 4 of chapter 10 of Romans, Christ is the end of the law. The problem for these people is ultimately they were preaching a false gospel. And a right gospel can only be proclaimed when we rightly understand who Jesus is. Jesus is God incarnate. We celebrate it at this time of the year for one purpose, to save sinners. Has that redemption of Christ been brought near to your life? Have you trusted in this statement? Have you believed in this trustworthy statement? It's worthy, Paul says, of a full acceptance, of, of fully embracing it, of, of fully believing it, of fully living it out, of fully devoting my life. Paul would go on and tell us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that the implications, the intention of that gospel is for all people. For God desires that none should perish. Friends, the gospel is good news for you and for me. It is good news for all people. Would you believe in this incarnation, incarnated Christ this morning? Would you believe in this babe who came in a manger, who lived his life in full obedience to the Father who would ultimately show us and evidence that obedience by his death on the cross and on that cross, he became a substitute for you and for me, taking what we deserved upon himself, death, so that you and I might take his righteousness. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. This is what Jesus would say in Luke chapter 9. I've not come to call the, the righteous to faith. I've come to call sinners to faith in Christ. Believe in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. Trust in Christ. And remember, friends, for those of us this morning who have trusted in Christ, look at Paul's designation at the end of verse 15. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
This is why Paul would write to us in the book of Romans that as believers, we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Why, friend? Because we realize if it, was not, if it were not for that mercy and grace of God that overflowed for us, we would still be dead in our trespasses and our sins. The gospel humbles the most arrogant of all people and reminds us that we're all on the same level playing field. Apart from Christ, sinners headed toward a devil's hell. Would you rejoice this morning in the salvation that God has brought to you? Would you be reminded this morning as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who you once were? And as you reflect upon who you once were, would you give thanks to God for who you are today? And let this designation be what drives your life. The gospel is a trustworthy statement. And if the gospel is a trustworthy statement, friends, if it's full, if it's, if, if it's for full acceptance, then this must be and ought to be the most important declaration that you and I could ever declare to our children, to our grandchildren, to our neighbors, to our parents, to our friends, to our coworkers. Is this a trustworthy statement and full of acceptance for you today? Evidence it by proclaiming it, by preaching it, by engaging the lost with this narrative. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But look what Paul does in verse 16. He says, Christ saved me so that I might be a display of His glory. God has saved us for a purpose, to increase our faith toward God and our love toward one another, but that we might also be an example to others. Look what he says in verse 16. But I received mercy. God withheld the judgment that I deserved. I, re I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, friends, God has saved you and me for an example, for a reason, that we might be an example to others of the glory of God. We are living, breathing examples of God's patience, of God's kindness. We go back to the narrative in Exodus chapter 34, and God makes this revelation to, to Moses of, of who he is. He's one that's long-suffering. As mentioned a few moments ago, friends, God would be perfectly just and taking every one of us out at the moment that we sin first. But the fact that you and I are alive today is a demonstration of the patience of God. In other words, Paul is saying, you and I ought to display boldly the truth of Christ and the way in which we live our lives, and the way in which we pro proclaim that gospel, knowing that we are a demonstration. So young Timothy, I know you're frustrated by those people in your church that are teaching false things. Young Timothy, I, I know that you're you're frustrated by the people in your church who are leveling false accusations. Young Timothy, I, I know that you're frustrated by, by all of those people in your church that are, that are lying. I, I know that you're frustrated by those people in your church who are, who are being gossips. I know that you are frustrated by those people in your church who are not rightly living out the gospel. But young Timothy, Paul is saying, 
Be very careful how you think about them. Be very careful how you talk about them. For the same patience that God has extended toward you, so too, young Timothy, ought you extend to others. We are a demonstration of the patience of God. And friend, if God can be patient and long-suffering with one who is a blasphemer, one who rejected Jesus as Lord, one who persecuted the body of Christ, one who was a violent, wicked, evil man, Can you identify one person in your sphere of influence that's worse than the Apostle Paul for whom your patience and God's patience should not likewise be extended? Paul is communicating the truth of the gospel. But he's also saying to young Timothy, as you lead the church of God, that same gospel that so radically transformed your life ought also to affect your leadership. Be patient, kind, and gracious with sinners because God has been kind and patient to you, a sinner, a chief sinner, And then look what Paul does, verse 17. He breaks out into this glorious hymn of praise. And he brings to a conclusion all of these thoughts and emotions of what Christ has done for his behalf. And he offers them as a moment of Praise to God, and He shows us that what the gospel does in our hearts and our lives is it points us in a fatherly direction. It points us in a heavenly direction. That what the gospel does in our hearts and our lives is it always brings us back to honor and glorify our great and glorious God. See, friends, we marvel at the incarnation, and we should. We marvel that that God has sent Christ, and and sending Christ, he he brings redemption, and, and we should marvel at that work. But that marvel always points us back to God himself. And so Paul sings, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. This, my friends, is what the incarnation and faith and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ does for you and for me, not just in a moment like this, and not just at Christmas time when we reflect upon this incredible story of incarnation, but this doxology ought always to be on our hearts and our minds and our lips to the king of ages. That's who God is. He is a righteous, ruling, supreme being. He is our king. And notice what type of king he is, friends. He is the king of all ages. There has never been a moment in which this great and glorious king has not existed. Oh, You live under the oppressive rulership of King Herod. He's not an eternal king. You live under the vicious rule of Queen Mary. She's not an eternal queen. 
you live under the evil democracy of the Biden administration. He's not an eternal president. There is only one. There is only one king who reigns supreme throughout all the ages, and he is God, the king of the ages. Notice what else he says. He is also the one who is immortal. You can't kill him. You can't take him out. He always was, he always is, and he always will be. He is immortal. But then notice what he says next. He's invisible. We're reminded, Paul says, that God is unlike mankind. He is not man-made. What was the problem for all the gods that Israel was following in the Old Testament? Or the pagan peoples in the Old Testament? Or the pagan peoples today? They are all gods formed in the image or by the hands of another man. But this great and glorious God is unformed by any man. He stands above every man. The king of the ages. He's immortal. He's invisible. He is the only God. And Paul brings us right back to Exodus chapter 20. In the first of the Ten Commandments. And this is why, friends, we should not worship another God, for there is only one. Have you bowed before that God today? Are you willing to give this God glory and honor for eternity? Have you submitted your life to His eternal reign? Friends, as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate the Incarnation, there is no greater way for you or for me to celebrate that Incarnation than, than by believing in that trustworthy statement that is worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Let's worship and bow down. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the glorious work of Christ. We thank you, God, for the beauty of, of your incarnation. We thank you that you, God, have accomplished on our behalf what we could never accomplish for ourselves. We marvel at this trustworthy statement this morning. We thank you that in your wisdom, God, you have indeed redeemed us. And we come before you, this king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God. We bow in submission in honor of your kingly rule this morning, giving thanks for what you have accomplished on our behalf. Friend, would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect upon that trustworthy statement? If you're here today and you're a believer, would you give thanks to God for that trustworthy statement? Would you pause for a moment of and give thanks to God? God came into the world to save sinners. Would you thank him that he has redeemed you? Friend, if you're here today and you have never trusted in this Christ, you've never believed in this Jesus, would you hear that trustworthy, would you hear that trustworthy statement and believe in it today? The Bible says, whosoever shall call 
on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you ask God to allow you to live your life as an example? That your life might be a demonstration of the patience and the kindness, the forbearance of God? Would you ask God to grant to you the strength that you need to proclaim Christ this Christmas season to those in your sphere of influence. In just a moment, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing. Friend, perhaps you're here and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. As we sing, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. So if you have questions, please feel free to walk forward and talk to one of us. We'd delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. But you don't have to come forward and speak to one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you, and you can feel free to turn to one of those persons seated next to you and ask them how you might trust in Christ. Secondly, perhaps you'd like one of us just to pray with you. That indeed the truths of this scripture might be evident in your life. That you might be one that evidences the hope of the gospel daily. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ, this would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, we ask that our response might be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.